When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Vernomatic Productions. Hi, this is Rick Emmett of Triumph, and you're listening to Metal Mayhem ROC with John the Vernomatic Verno and Metal Wolf. Are you ready? Live from the Metal Mayhem Studios in Rochester, New York. We are gold. And heard around the world by metalheads just like you. This is Metal Mayhem ROC. Heavy metal music. Your weekly dose of metal music, interviews, album reviews, news, and more. Want to be part of the show? Send us a message through our website, MetalMayhemROC.com. Or hit us up on Facebook and Twitter. Search Metal Mayhem ROC. A proud member of the Pantheon podcast team. It's getting nice and heavy. Now, welcome our hosts. John the Vernomatic Verno and direct from New Jersey, Metal Waltz. Good evening, everybody. As always, Thursday nights, new content drops. On tonight's show, we're joined by Rick Emmett from Canada's Triumph. Rick just released a brand new memoir called Lay It on the Line, a backstage pass to rock adventure, conflict, and triumph. Tells the story about the, the start of the band, Triumph, their rise to international and American success, and unfortunately, the demise of the band back in the late 80s. He shares stories about uh, him and Gil Moore and Mike Levin, how they became like the Three Musketeers, and that was the bond that the, that the band really shared, and what happened that caused resentment and anger for them not to talk for 20 years. So uh, we discuss that. We talk about the band's reunion in 2008, the reunion shows in Sweden and Rocklahoma, shares a cool story about the band, the limo driver and an overzealous state trooper in uh, Oklahoma, tells the story about the day that they played on the heavy metal day at the US Festival and how he was like, how am I going to do a guitar solo with Eddie Van Halen backstage going to be playing later? But he did just fine. Uh, let's see. Also, uh, cool stories about, you know, down in Jersey. Uh, oh, this is a cool one about how um, they opened up the new Meadowlands hockey arena. It was the first concert there. And the night before, the Islanders won the Stanley Cup and fucking uh, northern Jersey was just on fire. So he shares those stories, plus tons more. So that's coming up in just a second. Rick Emmett and talking about his brand new book. But, you know, if you missed some of our more recent episodes, uh, go up to the MetalMayhemROC.com website, check the archive drop-down box. Last week, we had Tommy Victor of Prong. Uh, A couple weeks before then, we had uh, Brittany Chapman, the daughter of Paul Chapman from UFO. Uh, Adam Dubin, the metal filmmaker. So there's tons of them up there. And I invite you to check out our YouTube channel where we post other interviews with other bands that don't make it onto the podcast. So there's a lot going on up around here. Again, MetalMayhemROC.com website. Sign up for our weekly newsletter. You'll get notifications on all of this. All right, enough of me. Let's get into this. Uh, We appreciate you listening. So here we go. Rick Emmett, Triumph. For my co-host, Metal Walt, I'm the Vernomatic. This is Metal Mayhem ROC. Okay, well, let's get into it. Like we mentioned at the top of the show, today's guest is a killer songwriter, guitarist, musician, producer. He's a grandfather, a husband, a dad, and one hell of a hockey fan. He's here to talk about his brand new book, Lay It on the Line, a backstage pass to rock star adventure, conflict, and triumph. From the band Triumph, Rick Emmett. Rick, welcome to Metal Mayhem ROC. How are you? Uh, Thank you. Yes, uh, it's, it's great to be here. I'm sitting in Rochester, New York. We're about 50 miles across Lake Ontario to downtown Toronto. I would like to introduce you to my co-host. He's down in New Jersey. He goes by the name of Metal Walt. 
Hey, Rick, Metal Wolf from New Jersey. How are you? I'm not as close. I would need a big, long ride up the New York State Thruway all the way up to Syracuse, make a left and keep going for about four hours. Yeah, yeah. I know where these things are, guys. I've played these places many, many times. In fact, like Rochester, we used to do this. The Triumph used to go across the top of New York State and do all the war memorials. There was one in Buffalo, then there was one in uh, Rochester. Rochester, and then one in Syracuse, right? The, the war memorial auditoriums. And, and of course, Jersey, oh man, you know, uh, I have a funny story about Jersey. We can tell it later in the show, but uh, yeah, I, I'll try to figure out how to tell it in, in uh, you know, public terms because it, it, it crosses the line a little bit. But love it. I, I love I it. Actually, two stories about playing New Jersey, but okay, on we go. Well, we'll get to that when we take our walk down heavy metal history lane. All right. So, Rick, why the memoir now? Is it just a, close the career tell us about it uh well i retired from the road uh back in about 2018 uh and um and then covid came and retired everybody else for a while uh but uh, my timing was excellent uh to to get off the road um and it just seemed like uh the triumph had done the documentary um the rock and roll machine documentary that that uh banger films did and i realized that you know Truth is this thing that's a perspective. Everybody's got their own truth, you know. And and the 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 documentary certainly had one that was one that those guys decided to tell. You know, when I'm, I'm saying Banger films and and um, but there were some things where I thought, well, you know, my life has been a lot more complicated than just being in this rock band. And you know, you, your question is an interesting one from the point of view of like, why even bother? Like. I was just reading the thing this morning. Mick Jagger says, I'm never writing a memoir. I'm down, you know, I, I live so that I'm, I'm worried about what's coming in the future and what I'm doing today. I'm not, I'm not interested in the past. I'm going to move on. And I get that. I, I totally get that. But I think uh, your question sort of framed it. There's chapters that you come to the end of and you close the door and then you move on. But sometimes the closing of the door is, I, for me, I'm a very writerly literate kind of guy and i felt like no i need to write this i need to find the right words i need to figure out how i want to say it uh you know i'm going to take my time i'm going to try and write it well so that it, it would be something that you know my grandchildren and my great-grandchildren might pick it up and read it and go eh, grandpa he was, what a character he was you know so that it, it, there's a kind of a memorializing uh that you're leaving a legacy all of those kinds of things but Part of it, too, is you just want to set the record straight. You know, that's part of it, too. And and Rick, you know, it's it's interesting in the in the book, like, you know, you cover off on all of your typical chapters, you know, your how, what it was growing up in your family and your your youthful years, how you learned to become a musician, the triumph years, the post triumph years, back to triumph years, the college professor, all that other stuff. But what I found interesting is there's a big equal focus on not just the music, but sort of the trade-off and the stresses that came with it, right? So you describe yourself as a rock star, yet, and I'll quote the book, you describe making choices for commercial and not musical success. The friction of having to make career choices versus prioritizing family needs, that search for personal balance and learning to say no. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, obviously, the, my personal truths that I arrived at living the kind of life that I did, uh, but one of them was that I ended up teaching as a college professor for a long time, and I taught music business, I taught songwriting, and I taught career development, and all of these kinds of things helped kids. You'd sort of function like a mentor, helping them produce their records, but also, uh, you know, trying to give them advice about, you know, how you're going to live your life and make choices, and of course young folks they have a lot of idealism and as an artist you know i'm 70 years old now i still have some i don't have as much as i used to you know don't have anywhere near the ambition that i used to but um i you know i still have that sense of if life's gonna work you you gotta kind of you know light some candles and hold them up in the darkness like there's got to be something that gives you a sense of of purpose and 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 uh so you know everything i did was like that and of course the big thing is I was in a band called Triumph and it took me a few years to figure it out. But, you know, wh why did they call the band Triumph? I think Mike and Gil really had no idea. They just kind of thought it was cool, like a motorcycle, you know, uh, 
like like a sports car triumph yeah this is going to be great and i, I kind of went no it's it, it it's got to stand for something you know if you're going to call it triumph so the whole thing of triumph becoming a band that had songs of of like inspiration and motivation and self empowerment and all of those kinds of long before it was really a you know a meme that existed in the world triumph was making tunes like that and it was it made it so that it wasn't just guys you know in heavy metal you know, jackets with buttons all over them and crests and like, but we had women coming to shows now. So like it, the, that, that kind of opinion about uh, the music that we made, it crossed over borders and boundaries. And I was very much that kind of a guy. I didn't want to just be locked into one kind of a thing, you know? So yeah, yeah, that, that's my story. There's a chapter in the book called the triumph chapter, like duh, but, you know, you assume Rick Emmett's doing a memoir, right? This is going to be 95% about Triumph, and it actually isn't. Like, the Triumph chapter is only, I think, about 29 pages out of 280. So there's a whole lot more to your life than just Triumph, as it was stated in the book, of course. Yes, and I appreciate you pointing that out, and and that's that's the truth of it. And, I mean, the, the thing, too, is, like, the biggest part, and the book makes this point very clear, the biggest part of my life was creativity. And creativity led me to triumph, and that was a chapter in my life. But, but that creativity is something that's still ongoing. You know, like even to, to sit here now and just do an interview, this is a kind of a creative act. And it's always something that I've found interesting and fun to do. I loved going into school and doing lectures. Uh, I loved prepping for classes because it was creative work. So, I mean, I like. I, I'm I'm still writing guitar pieces and and, and gonna be making new albums or recording guitar finger style stuff that's kind of jazzy, you know. So here I am on a metal show and I'm talking about you know jazz guitar pieces, but that's kind of the guy that I am, and that's the kind of creative life that I always really wanted. I wanted to be able to take a little bit of this, a little bit of that, you know. I mean, in my life, there there's no more important guitar player than say Richie Black. Like he was one of my heroes at a time of my life. And so, and that was the beginnings of metal. And so there is metal in my soul. There's no question that that's a part of who I am. Jimmy Page, there was, there was metal in Zeppelin. They weren't all metal, but the, you know, there was a fair bit of it there. But of course, when we played at the S Festival, which is one of the stories that I tell in the book, there were all these other bands like Judas Priest and, and, you know, and they get up on stage and they're wearing leather and studs and, and it's 90 degrees in the shade. And I'm thinking, and I'm glad I don't have to, you know, I'm glad I'm not that kind of a metal guy. You know, I prefer to be this kind of a metal guy wearing a track shirt, you know. Anyhow. Quick history. I went to school in Toronto. I graduated high school in 1986. I went to school up at Trevis Institute of Recording Arts. And oh, yeah. So here Oops. it is. I'm 19 years old, Toronto, Ontario, 1986, going to the Gasworks, going to Massey Hall. You said a quote about Triumph that, it was, first of all, you came into Mike and Gill's band, and it was really Gill's band. And how, how many other bands have a singer as a drummer? You really weren't the, the stereotypical front man. So tell, yeah, us, well, tell us about the, the dynamics of writing with these guys. Because you're the writing force. Well, you know, Gill was a bit of a writer, too, mm -hmm. when, when I first joined. Uh, and, and he definitely felt like, it was something that he wanted to do. Um, so in the first few albums, and there was a concerted effort, Mike was kind of functioning as the record producer. He knew more about the studio than Gil or I did. Yeah. And so, and Mike would sort of diplomatically say, okay, well, we'll have a Rick song, then we'll have a Gil song. Then we'll have a Rick song, then we'll have a Gil song. And 50-50, split the lead vocals. And of course, I liked it. To be in a band where you have another singer, it's great. You don't have to rip your throat out singing all night long you, you you work hard but then you get a break and you know so that that was a it was a nice uh way for the for uh the band to be able to kind of preserve itself basically uh o over the course of a long you know tour a long a long career but i think what happened was uh by about the third album the just a game album the songs "Lay It on the Line" and "Hold On" became pretty popular at radio. They were yeah. they were kind of the break across. We started to get on AM radio a little bit, um, so those things started to happen. And I was the vocalist on those songs. And I think 
it sort of showed that there was an appetite from the general public that if you wanted to break the band wider and become, you know, bigger and more popular, and certainly the record company at the time, RCA, that was their feeling. Their feeling was, hey, get the blonde guy to sing the songs, you know, yeah. um, which Mike and Gil weren't keen on when that went down. But the part, the other side of that uh, thing and then another, you know, this facet to your question, Mike and Gil were, um, as the band started to develop and become more and more successful, they were really having to spend a lot of time and energy being managers. They were having to kind of function as, as you know, uh, coordinating booking agents and coordinating the marketing and, co- and working with the record company. And Mike understood radio promotion way better than most radio promotion guys did. You know, mm-hmm. he, he just had a, he had a knack for it. He had a hunger and an ambition for it. Whereas Gil, when it came to large-scale productions, honestly, there was nobody in a rock band on the face of the earth that had the level of understanding that Gil did. Gil knew literally how to uh, take PA systems apart, put them back together, lighting systems, you know, genie lift towers. He understood all that. And and Gil was the kind of guy that loved doing shit like, you know, I'll cut a deal with a truck driver and we'll get it and we'll buy a truck and, and we'll, we'll own our own truck and we'll... So in the early days of the band, we had a tractor trailer. We were pulling up to the gas works with a with a tractor trailer <laughs> hey. truck. And people were going, what is this band? Like, you know, in the in the documentary, Larry Gowan talks about uh, the band tearing itself above all the, all the other band because that was kind of Gil's attitude that, you know, Mike, he adopted it really quickly and easily. The two of them had a mindset that was like, no, this is what this band's going to be. We're going to we're going to rule the world, and you know we're going to do it our way. So th- that was like I was junior partner, but then you know I was writing the songs that were starting to happen. I went, oh, this is my role. This is what I can contribute. You know, this is this is who I can be. But of course, as time goes on, you know, egos get in the way, and you know, um, everybody wants to be a rock star once you have a taste of this. You know, you you mentioned that, and I've read somewhere, I'm not sure where that. When the band came around in the early, mid-70s, you were taking a little bit of like the theatrics of Cooper and Kiss and this and that. Did the dual writing pull from your love of the Beatles where they all sang? Kiss, you had Gene and Paul, all four of them singing. It almost expanded the brand. And did those bands that I just mentioned have anything to do with both of you writing and singing? Uh, oh, absolutely. You know, and uh, I mean, I, I think in the... In the, in the very early stages of the band, you know, when we were just a bar band, we were playing a lot. We had a couple of Led Zeppelin medleys. Mm-hmm. We had a Jimmy Hendrix medley. We had a Deep Purple medley. So the common ground was really those bands. But if you sort of looked a little deeper and beyond it to each guy's taste, you know, uh, there there was uh, a common ground. Like Gil loved Grand Funk and he loved Mark Farner, you know, and, and he just loved the way that that guy sang and stuff. And he... So there were, and you could hear it in his voice. Gil loved um, Bad Company and Paul Rogers, and the, that bluesy kind of quality is something that Gil he gravitated towards. And when he wrote, you'd hear it in in the stuff that mm-hmm. he did. I I wasn't as bluesy. I had blues, you know. There's, it's not like I hadn't cut my teeth listening to you know the the the, the English guitar players had sort of uh, reinvented American blues and given it back to a younger generation, and so then through, you know, back in page and Clapton, we were finding our way back to, you know, Albert King and, 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 yeah. you know, uh, the cotton blues band and, and, you know, that Mike Bloomfield, like there was stuff that I, I got to hear because of the group of musicians that I was with. So that was common ground for me and Gil. Like I could speak that language and, and musically I, I liked to play it there. I didn't want to have to stay there because you mentioned the Beatles. I mean, I was, Huge about the beat. I like I liked vocal bands in the end more than I like, um, you know, uh, hard rock bands that were about groove. I liked tunes. I liked songs. I liked you know. And I yeah, I eventually got to a progressive period in my life. I was listening to Yes, yeah. King Crimson, and Gentle Giants, and you know, Return to Forever. And you know, my my brain was expanding in ways I don't think Gil and Mike ever really got there. You know, they they were pretty happy with the roots they had. I wouldn't call some of your classic, you know, hold on, lay it on the line, sappy, but they were 
more singing rather than the hard rock. And you're right. Gil handled some of that early stuff, the hard earlier stuff. Yeah. Well, the lights go down. Yeah. By even earlier than that street fighter. And the, yeah. there were riff rock tunes that, that he was, he'd write a riff and he, he'd sing it into his dictaphone. So it'd be like, I would, li- he would say, here's the song I've been working on. And I would listen to this little tape that we going like, I go, yeah, it sounds like Deep Purple. It's good. You know, yeah, I can work on that. We'll work it up. And so he was that kind of a of a of a of a guy that he liked that kind of riff rock and stuff. And uh hey, that was right up my alley. I mean, I said earlier, you know, Blackmore was kind of one of deep purple, like, wow. You know, they they blew my mind. I thought that was the greatest rock band ever. When I was a teenager, you you were living in a, you know, in Toronto and going to Trebus in your era. Back mm-hmm. in my era, I would do things like climb the car and I would drive to Detroit to see Edricks or go up to Montreal to see Deep Purple. You know, <sighs> like I'd get on the train and I'd go on up to Montreal to to see Deep Purple play at the Montreal Forum, and I just thought they were the greatest rock band on the planet Earth. You know, but you're a t- teenager, right? That like. You're just, you're you're discovering the world. Well, talk to this guy. Hey, Metal Walt's a huge purple head. You guys, I mean, I mean, I'm I'm 53 and I love Deep Purple and and I, I didn't I didn't even got a chance to see them till 1991 when they had Joel and Turner in the band. But still, oh man, yeah, still no, I saw them. I saw them at St. Lawrence Market in Toronto one time, uh, and uh, Ian Gillen was not in a happy mood, uh, and Blackmore was even worse. Like. He, Foul, foul black mood. And he had <laughs> about six or seven strats and he would he would be playing one and, it, and, he, and he, he'd just beat the shit out of it. Like the whammy bar. And eventually he would throw it down on the ground and be kicking it and stomping on it and playing the bar, the whammy bar with his foot. And a roadie would scurry out and bring him a new one. And Richie had, you know, Bring over his shoulder and plug it. And the, the one that was on the floor with hearts flying off it, the, the roadie would grab it and run it back and start trying to reassemble it. And there were about six or seven of these guitars that were in a constant stream from Richie's chest down to the floor, over to the roadie's bench, oh, back onto the top of the amp. Like just, and Richie was just destroying these guitars. And it was, yeah, one of the greatest nights of my life. I go, oh, this is great, you know. That is that is awesome. That is a great story. Uh, Rick, you know, I was thinking about this, too. Early in the book, you describe you use the words it and play that become an important part of who you are as a person and your persona as an artist. And I and I guess in a sense, as you were describing the experience from MCA and the RCA lawsuit, and in a way, that's when you became a bit let's say, disenfranchised from, let's say, what you call the Three Musketeers and the big rock and roll machine. And that's in a way where you almost sort of mentally started planning your exit from Triumph, correct? And it wasn't because it was no longer about, like, why you signed up to be a musician to begin with, right? Yeah. And, and you know, I mean, I think for you to describe it as saying that I was planning my exit, like, that's that would be way too uh that's that that's not what was happening uh, certainly what was happening was i was considering ooh what if i had to leave like what what if this you know what if this keeps going the way that it's going like how would i get out of this? so it, it was a much fuzzier grayer cloud than having like all right i've got to plan my exit like you know i mean even when it got right down to the end in in 87 88 uh i was still feeling like is there some way that i can rescue is there some way we can save this you know like how how might i be able to to reinvent it but uh i couldn't find i couldn't see a way to do it but um yeah i mean you know as as i mentioned earlier this whole thing about feeling constricted or blocked you know uh i don't mind it when 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 the idea is to say okay it is going to be creative play. That's what it's going to be. And that's going to be the priority all the way down the line in everything that we do. And in Triumph, one of the best things about the band was that we that we shared this sense of humor. The three guys, it was like, isn't this surreal? This is bizarre that our lives are like this. Isn't this great? So we always had a kind of a lightheartedness 
within this, you know, tremendously serious business that you've got record contracts and you've got merchandising deals and you've got tours that you've got to go out and play on and they seem like they're never going to end. You know, there's all of the stuff that's going on that locks you into a box. But if you feel like, well, there's lots of air holes, you know, mm-hmm. there's somebody put a vent in the roof. I'm all right. You know, I'm not going to suffocate here. Um, but I, I would feel it if, if, if the focus was no longer about that creative play, the, the fun we're going to have. We're going to go in the studio. We're going to have songs and make records. And we're going to have a lot of fun. It's going to be great. You know, it's going to be play. You know, we're going to play. And um, I live for that. So, you know, as a musician, I want that moment where I'm, you know, I'm not even in my own head anymore. I'm inside the music and I, I'm playing, you know. And uh, I'm not sure that Gil and Mike had the same, I don't know, religious, spiritual experience that I had when it came to, you know, I, maybe they did, but maybe the business kind of, maybe it hammered it out of them after a while. You know, I'm not sure. You know, we had our moments and, and some of them were glorious. You know? Hey, Rick, on, on that point too, you know, there's, and I love this about your book. When you get away from the musical side, you, you there's a lot of emphasis on family in your book. I mean, you give... Um, the biggest accolades to your wife of 47 years, Jeanette. I mean, your four kids, your grandkids. Now there's even a funny line in there where I think something about it took maybe six or seven years of your career before your dad finally said, "Eh, I guess this music thing's working out for you. Okay. But ultimately when, you know, family's a big thing for you, but ultimately when it did come time to let's say resurrect triumph for Sweden, rock and rock, Oklahoma, it was your brother, Russell, who was the catalyst to kind of say, all right, Rick, it's time to give up the ghost here. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, there's no question that uh, when Triumph came apart, and well, when I left it, um, there was a lot of negativity and there was a lot of bad blood. And then lawyers argued with lawyers for years and years and years. And it took me, I don't know, seven or eight years to get a settlement. And even then, it was, you know, no one's ever happy when there's a divorce settlement. You know, it's like, uh, and um, then I, I, I carried around resentments and 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 anger, and and you know a lot of negativity. And so my brother, he, he got cancer, and and you know it was uh, stage three and a half, you know, stage four, and and um, he, but he was the one that sort of you know sat me down and. We're having one of those conversations that you have, which is, you know, putting your affairs in order, all of these kinds of things. And he said, you know, you carry around a lot of baggage and you should really try to fix it. And I go, I thought we were talking about you. Yeah. I didn't think we are talking about me. I don't think it's fair to, to turn this around on me. He goes, well, he goes, this is kind of about me too, because I, I, I want you to try and do this for me. This is something from a legacy point of view, I'd really like to see you. Because my brother Russell was as big a Triumph fan as there ever was. You know, nobody liked it more than him that he would get a limo sent to his house to pick him up and take him down to a king at Maple Leaf Gardens or, you know, down in Buffalo or whatever. And and uh, he he just, he loved it. And and uh, he and I were, we were very, very close. I mean, there's pictures in the book where you can see we played in softball yeah. leagues together and, and you know, uh, we were tight. And so when he made the request, I went, well, okay, I got I got to do this. I got to do this for him. And I think Mike and Gil appreciated the fact that here wasn't this, you know, son of a bitch guy that had fought with them for years coming back. Here was this guy that was coming back because he had, a, you know, a younger brother that was in a bad play that was making this happen for Mike and Gil. Like, it, you know, th- that yeah. we were all going to benefit from this. So uh, Russell was coming from the right place. For the right reasons and that made it easier for us to sort of say okay put down your weapons yeah let's peace rick let me ask you what were you angry at what were you resenting the fact that the musketeers that that bond you guys had was being broken was it the fact that you're finally like a different stage of your life 87 88 i don't know what the exact age was maybe late 30s and you're like man i'm really turning into um a real adult was it that that bond was not there 
What was the anger and resentment? I was uh, 34, 35, uh, a like a lady, a born in 53. So yeah, 35 years old. And uh, part of it was that, uh, you know, uh, to answer your question about, you know, what was the big thing emotionally behind the anger? I think it was because I felt like the, the spirit of the band, the reason for the band, the heart of the band had been betrayed. And so I felt, I felt there was a betrayal there. And, you know, I mean, I look back on it now and I realize, well, you know, nobody was getting any younger. Everybody had families and kids. And in fact, Gil, was, his, his marriage was dissolving and coming apart. His dad died and that put him in a really bad place. He was, and he'll admit, you know, he'll say, hey, I, I wasn't in, even in my right mind. And he wasn't. He was making decisions. And part of it was, they, they were business decisions that, I, you know, I absolutely... 100% didn't agree with, but I would get outvoted. And so there was a frustration there that, that, that uh, it, like what I considered to be common sense reason was not being listened to. You know, there were business practices that I, you know, I thought, man, this is, this is kind of going beyond the pale here. Like I can't, I can't live, you know. So uh, I, you know, I, I felt like I don't have a choice here. I, you know, I, I've, I've got to give my notice, and this is going to be horrible because the financial uh, implications, the, the the consequences, are going to be disastrous. But you know, at a certain point, and maybe I say this in the book, I can't remember, but uh, it's not about money anymore. You, there's certain decisions you make in your life, and they can't be about money. If you're always making your decisions based on money, then you know. Uh, I think you, you're betraying the spirit of what the best stuff of life is supposed to be about, which is, you know, play and music and, and love and family and all of these other kinds of things. So, What did you think about when Phil X joined the band briefly? And nothing against Phil because he's great in his own work, but to come into Triumph, it's he even admitted it in the documentary. It's like, what am I doing here? I wouldn't even want to see me. What was your take on that whole period? Well, I, there was a, a a guy named Jim Norris who used to run a Canadian musician magazine. He he put together a guitar seminar, and I think it would have been 89, maybe the, like the year after, and Phil had just come into the thing. And Phil was going to be in, at this guitar workshop thing too. This, uh, So I was going to be there, and Jim said to me, are you okay with this? I said, I'm, I'm fine, totally fine with it. Yes, absolutely, no problem. And when we got there, I, I, wow, I went up to Phil and I shook his hand and I said, Phil, there are only two guys on the planet Earth that know what you're stepping. I, I know what you've stepped into and you know what you're in. Now. <laughs> yeah. And so I have, you know, complete respect for you and you have my, I wish you absolutely the luck <laughs> because only I know what it's like to be in your shoes. And I go, it's not going to be easy, man. Like, uh, but he was, he's a, he's a good guy, Phil. He's a tremendous guitar player. He's an unbelievably great guitar player. But that, I think that's a tough thing. You know, like uh, the, the spirit of triumph embodied in the songs that I wrote and the songs that I sang, clearly he was not going to be able to fill that void, you know. Um, and there, there's very, I, I don't say this to be self-aggrandizing, but I, I, I just think, it's it's a really how many guitar players that are you know world class rock guitar players sing the way that I sing? H hardly any, you know. How many singers that sing the way that I sing can play guitar at the level that I play it? Like very very few. So that was you know I mean why would RCA want to sign the band to a record deal? It's because they go hey this is a kind of a unique talent here. I think we we want. We want to give this guy a chance to be making records. He deserves the opportunity to do it. Um, so, and there's, so there's there's not a lot of folks like that. You know, you might find in any big town, you might find two or three that are, uh, you know, that are capable on that level, singer, guitar player. But now there's a third element. How how, how are they at writing tunes? Because you got to be a songwriter too. Because th that's part of what that's the fuel that drives the industry on any level, you know? Like, I, I just watched the thing in the Everly Brothers the other night, and there was a quote from Chet Eck, 
And somebody asked him and said, hey, Chet, you know, what is the Nashville sound? What is that sound? And Chet puts his hand down into his pockets and he jingles his points. And he goes, you hear that? <laughs> that's, that's, that's the Nashville sound. And the truth of the music business, no matter what kind of music you play, you got to sell records. You got to sell tickets, you know? And um, I, I think th that was a hard thing for Triumph to have to try and replace, you know? Man, dare I say it, probably impossible. You know, because I was the history there. Hold on, land on the line, magic power, fight the good fight, never surrender. Like, that, those were the evergreen tools. I wrote every one of them, you know. The reason they were so great was because it was only you could sing it. Because you put so much of Rick Emmett into it. Even just well, watching those videos, just the look of your face and the, 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 your eyes. It's like, forget it, man. Uh, hold on is timeless yeah well I, I appreciate you saying that I am going to you know I'm going to do a shout out to a few folks like for example Tommy Shaw would have been a great guy because he could have sung and played like <laughs> Tommy was he's, he's capable of you know but there aren't that many you know you, yeah. you can kind of one hand you know like there's not that many guys that can sing that high you know hit those notes the, the guy in Zebra I can't remember his name offhand. Randy Jackson yeah, yeah there's your man like that yeah, like that guy could have done it, but he had his own thing. Why would he want to leave the zebra thing to come over and join Triumph? So, what, so you're saying you, you have to be a thin, thin white guy with blonde hair? <laughs> That's the prerequisite. Uh, no, no, <laughs> no. Uh, I, I, would, I would definitely not want. You know, if, if they if they could have found a really hip uh, 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 chick that, that like a female guitar player that that you know it might it might have yeah. worked, but. Um, you know, by the time a, 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 a female guitarist has reached that level, she's already got her own record deal. She's already happy. She's not going to lead for her thing to come over and join triumphs, you know? Hey, hey, Rick, you're also forgetting to call out one of your other best attributes, which you mentioned in the book is about, and I hopefully I could say this word right, that you are dextro-sinistral. <laughs> That's it. Yeah, dextro-sinistral, yes. Yeah. So tell <laughs> us what that means. <laughs> okay, so... I'm naturally left-handed, so uh, in the sense that gross motor control. If I was going to hammer a nail, I would use my left hand. If I was going to well, throw a baseball, you know, whatever, left hand. But if I'm going to write with a pen, I use my right hand. So fine motor control was my right hand. Uh, when I picked up a fork to eat, I would use my right hand. So my brain kind of has both hemispheres doing different kinds of things. Now, I'm not, uh, uh, it's, it's fairly unique. There are about 10 people in 100 are left-handed, and about 1 out of 10 are dextrosinistral. But uh, this thing that I just said about watching the Everly Brothers last night, one of the Everly Brothers was left-handed, and his father absolutely insisted that he learn how to play right-handed. And so he was a left-handed guy playing guitar that way. And uh, they had Waddy Wachtel doing, uh, you know, like, uh, talking about the... And he's a left-handed guy that plays right-handed. Like... I think Blackmore was a left-handed guy that played right-handed. Yep. It's 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 not that uncommon, um, for because these guys you actually you you rise quickly because you have this strong hand on the fretboard. You can it gives you a kind of an advantage. So, you know, um, yeah, that's it's a, it, it's a cool little fact. I mean, it, let's be honest, that was the real reason you got the big record label deal. <laughs> yeah, they, they go, there's something wrong with his brain i i think i think we should hire him he's damaged goods great you, you know i wanted to tell you a jersey story now can i tell you oh. a jersey story oh yeah okay go ahead jersey story okay. oh, hold on hold on hold on one second guys we got to take a quick little break and when we come back rick could tell his cool jersey story and metal walt has his very own jersey story and then we're going to talk about uh some big festival that triumph played and a couple other cool anecdotes about rick's time with triumph we'll be right back metal mayhem roc metal, metal. i'm metalhead metal mayhem roc is the home for metal from the very beginnings this is james the from hellstar you're listening to burn o dave overkill from the 
Cleveland band, Destructor. Hey, Dave, how are you? I'm doing great. It's a long-time headliner. Hey, this is Red Beach from White Snake. Hey, this is Vinny Apathy from Dio, Black Sabbath, and Last in Line. To music of today. Hi, this is Olaf Wickstrand from Enforcer. Hi, this is Braun from Mastodon. You're listening to Metal Mayhem ROC. With John the Vernomatic Burner. Plus, we talk with producers and authors to give you behind-the-scenes info. Hi, this is William Irwin, author of The Meaning of Metallica, Ride the Lyrics. Greg Renoff, the author of the book Van Halen Rising and the uh, Ted Templeman book, A Platinum Producer's Life in Music. Pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Metal Mayhem ROC. A proud member of the Pantheon podcast team. Giving you more to listen for. Join our community and always remember to keep it heavy. Hello, Pantheon podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles, plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon Podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. Okay, we're back. We're talking with Rick Emmett, his new book, Laying on the Line, a backstage pass to rock star adventure conflict and triumph okay rick you got some cool jersey uh story let's hear it buddy so we're playing the first gig the first big rock gig ever in the meadowlands so the the building's been built out in the middle of the swamp somewhere and we, you know here, here we come and it's a big gig i think we got um a japanese band called loudness is on the bill but mel is on the bill and see i remember this gig because of leslie so we're backstage, and Leslie comes to me, and he's got your know, voice like this. Hey, Rick, yeah, I, I got something for you, man. I got press. And he reaches into his pocket, <laughs> and he pulls out a guitar knob, and it's a Demarzio guitar knob, and, and he and he puts it in my hand. It's a, a cream. I still have it in my collection, but it goes to eleven. It's a it's you know it's a Spinal <laughs> Tap guitar knob goes to eleven, and he goes ah Spinal Tap there it goes to eleven, and like he, Leslie was so clever i was never gonna forget the guy because this thing made him like absolutely totally unique mm-hmm. and then when it was like so how long are we gonna let a mountain play i go oh fuck let him play for an hour and a half i don't give a shit <laughs> leslie's great you know <laughs> let let him let him do whatever they want to do okay so the the b part of this story is we've got a guy named jeff carp as our role manager and um jeff had trained under uh, uh, a promoter out in the midwest united states and uh, Colorado and and uh, you know that that neck of the woods, 
And he was a very uh, officious, you know, all busting kind of dude, right? And so one of the things that he would routinely do is he would go out and he, he would count the seats, like just do a rough count based on the, 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 what the promoter had given him as a seating chart. He would go out and he would count the seats in the house. And if there was a whole set of seats, there was, it wasn't on the manifest. It wasn't on the thing. And so he calls the the building manager and the promoters rep together and they stand there on the floor of the hall and he goes, Hey, there's a little section of seats up there that they're not even on the, they're not even on the seating plan. Well, what is this? And the, they, the, the guy looks, they look at each other, right? And then and the building manager goes, well, those are Frank's seats. And he goes, Frank's seats? He goes, what do you mean? He goes, you know, Frank's in that room. And you go, oh, because oh, it's Jersey and there's unions <laughs> and there's, you know, there's. Wow. Yeah, it's, you know, somebody's got to be sort of making sure that the peace is being kept by a certain, <laughs> so you just go, oh, okay. Now, this was a fairly common, like, I don't want to make it sound like Jersey's all, every, every place you go, there would be a couple of extra, uh, you know, uh, rows of seats on the floor, you know, and the promoter wasn't telling anybody about him until the road manager counted him and goes, oh, okay, yeah, you caught me, all right, yeah. You know, yeah. And that, this kind of shit would go on all the time, but anyhow, that that's why I'll never forget the Meadowlands in New Jersey. That arena is, I don't know if you know this, the arena is still there. It's, it's, it's now emboldened, emboldened in a, in a shopping mall and they can't take it down. So it's like the ghost of the Meadowlands arena lived there. That's where I saw all my first shows and everything back in the day. But Rick, I have now my story to tell you about like something that happened at a Rick Emmett show at BB Kings in New York City that had nothing to do with the show itself. But you're a good sense of humor guy, and you're going to love this story. Right. So it's May of 2007. We go to BB Kings. We see a great show. It was awesome. I'm with two of my buddies. My one buddy who does not drink, he decided to get to the show late, and he had an empty stomach. And for the yayas, we go out, and we have a couple beers afterwards. And he decides to order one of these fancy martinis. Now, the guy doesn't drink. He has nothing on his stomach. And mm -hmm. next thing you know, we can't find him. And he's driving the car. I go find him in the bathroom in the basement. It's now like midnight. And I say to him, Mark, what's wrong? Lance, I got sick. I'm thrown up here. I'm drunk. It was that martini. So next thing you know, he, we're like, well, give us the car keys. We'll drive home. No worries. It's a Wednesday night now, mind you. And guess <laughs> what? He's driving a stick shift. And my buddy and I don't know how to drive a stick shift. So we now had to roam around the city till 430 in the morning on a Wednesday night for him to sober up so we could get home. Ah. Gee. So that That's will great. forever, forever, ever be labeled the Rick Emmett night. And I told him I was going to talk to you. And he's I could tell he's probably like, fuck, this guy's he's going to bring up the story about the martini. Everybody's got to have stories and everybody's got to have a legend. And, and you know, your your, your worst moments are, are also going to be as legendary as your best. So tell him, I, you know, I appreciate that. I've had a few of those nights myself where you're. You know, you're calling Ralph on the great white telephone and because you've had a little too much to drink. And uh yeah. It well, did he manage to stay sober enough to catch most of the show? Or did this happen? Oh no, we 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 saw the show sober. It was we went out for those couple of drinks oh, afterwards. So it was a long it was a long day the next day. But hey Rick, we didn't we don't want to I didn't want to forget to ask you too. Going back to the reunion about Sweden Rock and Rocklahoma, I was in attendance at Rocklahoma. So I'm one of those rare guys that I was maybe a little bit too young to see Triumph, even at the Meadowlands. But I said, you know what? I got to be here. And I went down there. And of course, it was a great night. But talk a little about your experiences at Sweden Rock and, and Rocklahoma with the tornado. Yeah, it was that was a bizarre. I mean, both of the things were kind of weird. Sweden, it was like, why were we going to Sweden? Why didn't we just play on our hometown? Why did we have to go all the way to Sweden? Well, part of it was just, was just that was the offer that was on the table, and it was one of those offers that you couldn't refuse. And so then the agent says, "Well, why you know don't just go out and play one. I, I can put you on the Rocklahoma bill. Do you want to play Rocklahoma?" We went, "Okay, well that one we could fly our kids to. You know, in, in Gil's case in particular, he wanted his kids to see him playing in a band. Yeah. You know, so because um, they you know they'd never seen him. So uh, Rocklahoma, yeah, the the 
first of all, there was a tornado the night before. And so, and it'd be, I don't know, knock down a few tents and move some shit around on the site. And Lord knows what had happened. But, you know, that was the night before. Uh, and then when we we're going over there, the guy that's our limo driver, uh, he's driving along the highway and, and, uh, the, the, the state police pull him over because he was speeding in our limo. <laughs> and we're in the back seat of the limo. And then the cops, he doesn't have a valid driver's license. And so the cops are going to arrest him. And then we're thinking, well, we, geez, we're going to be late. Oh, we had to do a press conference before we were going to go on. So we were late for the press conference. We wanted to get there. And we started to climb out of the car. And the state trooper, like, you know, typical guy in those, you know, flat hats, yeah, you know, the, yeah. the, the Jetsons. And, and he goes like, hey, boy, where do you think you're going? You know, it's like, uh, we, well, we, we got to get another car. He goes, you can't get out of the car. You get back in that car around the house. Oh, okay. So we have to get, so we're sitting in the car, you know, going, oh, geez, what's going to happen? You know, go on the cell phones, trying to call road managers and trying to call in. So eventually, you know, the police literally cuff the guy and take him in the, into their car. And we have to wait for a car to come and get us and then have to ask permission. Can we, is it okay for us to get out of the car and change another car? Yeah, all right, you guys can go now. But, uh, so that that is is my strongest memory of how it all got started. The gig <laughs> itself, uh, I remember it was a really really hot day, and I remember mm-hmm. uh, Light Ranger was on before us, and I know some of the guys in the band, right? And uh, that Jack Blades, the, the bass player, he he was wearing leather pants, and I was thinking, Jack, you know, not a good choice. <laughs> and then literally, I'm watching from the side, and I can see they bring out one of those. Uh, plastic rubber made garbage pails full of ice water and jack would come over periodically and stick his head into the thing and then whoosh you know shoot his hair back and then run back on stage in order to try and cool himself off because they were running around in you know a hundred degree oklahoma weather and yeah so but they played they were great they had you know, a terrific band and i think uh Brad Gillis might have been back in the band at that point. I'm not sure. I'm not. Yeah. Uh, Joel Huckster plays with them sometimes, and and Joel's a fantastic, yeah. one of my favorite rock guitar players. Um, but a great band. And and, and, the, and the, uh, there's a drummer that sings Kelly Key, right? So yeah, oh, yeah, I, yeah, I, yeah, Kelly. Yeah. We've done some. Shit, or I like Kelly. So um, anyhow, that I so I have strong memories of watching those guys play. What else about that gig can I tell? You? Oh. You know, we had many malfunctions, but pot lights, the uh, flash pots that blew off at the wrong time, and the mirror ball came down at the wrong time. When I was trying to do my uh, hold on acoustically, they had somebody's metronome from a click track thing on a feed that was coming back through my monitor on stage and my monitor alone that was going like tick, 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 tick. <laughs> Tick, and I'm trying to play doodle dee dingle doodle doodle dee dingle doodle. <laughs> Music holds the secret. Tick, tick, tick. So it was like, okay, this is some concentric circle of hell, you know, like, ah, I'll, I'll survive. <laughs> hey, Rick, we're um, considerate of your time. Jeanette has a whole a honeydew list for you. You got to get back to your work. But um, next week's going to be three years since the passing of Eddie Van Halen. And one of the highlights of your touring career was the Us Festival performance. We had Gilmore on the show earlier this spring when you got when Triumph was releasing that 40th anniversary package. And he mentioned, he shared a story about you guys were playing, well, what was it? They were playing in Tampa, and then they had to fly right over to the Us Festival. It was hot as hell. People were partying. You guys share your experience. One, if any experience with the... Uh, Eddie Van Halen, and two, that whole day of the US Festival, and three, put the rest of this rumor that you're possibly going to join the damn Yankees? <laughs> okay, so uh, my memory of, of the US Festival, um, it was just another gig, but it was one where we, yeah, literally, we flew across the country, we played with ZZ Top in Florida uh, on a multi-act thing, and then flew across, and now we were going to have to do the South Festival gig, and we were on 4 o'clock in the afternoon or something, 4 or 5 in the afternoon, and uh, I felt like, uh-oh, you know, Judas Priest was on before us, and and, and uh, Scorpions were on after us, and I was thinking, that's quite the sandwich to be in, you know, 
But uh, to, to mention Eddie, uh, no, I didn't have any interaction with him at all in person, ever in my life. But mm. it, it, his legend, his his uh, the, the, just the whole reputation of Eddie loomed so large. When I was getting ready, you know, warming up to go on stage, and we were picking up the set list, and you know, thinking, and we only had to play for about an hour. And um, but but I walked the, the guitar solo. The guys wanted me to put the guitar solo in the show. Then would Nora would be in the middle of a rock and roll machine. And I thought, oh man, I'm going to do a guitar solo on the same stage that Eddie Van Halen is going to be on shortly, you know, within a couple of hours. And I went, I, I sure hope I have a good day because, yeah. you know, um, the, 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 the most important electric rock guitar player on the planet Earth is going to be up here later. And, you know, so in a way it was like, uh, psychologically eddie was kicking my ass they were in their compound party and hard you know yeah and yeah. and that Va his valerie Bar Bertinelli was his wife and so you know the hollywood film and tv actors and actresses were coming and going and and david was in his glory and he did that you know that they had press conferences and you know a lot of uh a lot of party favors had been consumed in different ways so you know um yeah it, it was a pretty crazy day but uh we were we were just you know, all business. We were just trying to make sure that we kept our heads down and played a good show. And and I wanted to you know have a, and I, I did have a good day that day. I, I I managed to and I I you know I do thank Yeti for the fact that it was like well you know I I knew he was going to be on that stage and I thought man I I, I better do something that uh, you know I can be proud of. You know I can't be Eddie Van Halen, but I can be me. So I'll try and be the best me that I can. And it worked out pretty good. Our our uh, live at the US Festival DVD it, it 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 did all right. Now the damn Yankees rumor. Um, let me see. How shall I deal with this? I, I was going through a period where I'd left Triumph and I was and I put out a record on my own, and um, and uh, but then uh, the record label Charisma had gone bankrupt, and so uh, I was kind of floating. Who knew what was going to happen in the states? So I started getting some calls and part of it was because i think we'd shopped the um the absolutely album right my absolutely album the first one i, I left uh, i made when i left triumph we'd shopped that to john collodner at geffen and he passed on it but then he knew that i was kind of out and around in the mix and so he would start maybe recommending me to different bands or managers and so i think bud prager had something to do with damn Yankees. I, I, I can't remember if that's the truth of it. But maybe he, like he was maybe managing Ted, and then Ted was going to go into this damn Yankees thing, and, and and they were just fishing around. Jack called me. Jack Blades called me. Mm -hmm. I think Tommy called, but I, well, I think Prager called me, and, and Jack called me and said, hey, you know, we're putting this band together. And I said, well, who's going to be in it? And he said, well, I got Tommy Shaw. And I got Ted Nugent, and I go, wait, whoa, whoa, hold it. You already got more guitar players. Yeah, like, I was going to say. I'm stick Ted Nugent. I, you know, like, I know that there's a sonic assault that's going to exist there. <laughs> you you know, you don't need another guitar, you know. And in any case, I, I, I didn't really want to be joining another band. Like, I'd had enough of bands. I wanted to be sort of, even if I was going to be living in a smaller world with smaller ambitions and, and you know, um, I, I, I wanted to sort of be my own boss and, and run my own house and not necessarily be partnered up with guys that already had a pretty strong understanding of how they were going to run their house and their partnerships. And so like, I thought, man, what's it like when you're sitting around with Ted and you're, you're talking about, you know, the merch deal? <laughs> what's Ted like when he's having those kinds of questions? Does he keep a firearm on the table with those questions? You know, so. Like, it's sort of like um, a perfect example, less is more. Rochester, New York. Uh, you mentioned The Rock. Yeah, you've played the Rochester Auditorium, the Rochester War Memorial. I personally saw some of those shows. I saw you down at the, the old Rochester Festival tent. You were there. Uh, oh, yeah. I think it was 87. It was a solo show. And I think you had, correct me if I'm wrong, did you have a girl saxophone player or something? Is that, Or am I? I did. No, Colleen Allen, and she was fantastic. She was, uh, yeah. what a breath of fresh air that was. I mean, I was looking to to break the molds, right? So people thought of Rick Cameron Triumph, and they thought of you know a, a hard rock, big extravaganza. 
And so when I put a band together, I went, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to get a female sax player that can help sing high harmonies, that can, you know, uh, you know, play sax lines, change the nature. And Colleen could play flute and soprano sax. And so, she, you know, there was you could get all these different voice things that would happen inside the music. And of course, the problem was that, you know, I also added a second guitar player and a keyboard player. And by the time I was finished, six-piece band, well, she needed her own room. And then the guys in the band were going, hey, you know, I need my own room, too. How come she gets her own room? You go, well, for obvious reasons, you idiots, you know. Yeah, yeah. But, so it got too expensive. And eventually I had to let that band go. But she was great. Well, I guess all that... uh Young Street Bredores and Hash Oil didn't burn the Vernomatic's brain too much. So, hey, Rick, thank you for uh, spending the hour with us. Um, Again, the book, Lay It on the Line, a backstage pass to rock star adventure, conflict, and triumph. I appreciate it, and um, let Walt bring us in for a landing. Thanks, my man. Thanks, Bert. So, Rick, before I let you go, um, one of the really good things that popped out of the book was I'm a massive New York Islanders hockey fan. I know you're a hockey fan. And it was candy to my mouth when I saw that you guys played Nassau Coliseum May of 1983, the day after they eliminated Wayne Gretzky and the Edmonton Oilers. So that was like, yeah, man, Rick was there. He got the vibe of Nassau and the Islanders. Yeah, you can imagine. Uh, never mind the building itself, the parking lot. There were some guys that they literally, they'd never gone home. They just stayed and party, and then yeah, we got tickets for a trial, and they, so they made it like a, a whole two day event, and uh, it was something, man. It was uh, usually when um, when Triumph would play a building at the end of the night after the show was over because we blew off so many flash pots and had flamethrowers and dry ice and stuff, and never mind the amount of dope that, that you know people in the seats would smoke. The building would be this hazy, foggy you know, thing after when we were leaving. But in this case, when we arrived there at at the Long Island Coliseum, it was already, the smoke was already sort of wafting out of the, <laughs> the, the windows and the doors of the place. And it was, you know, the, the, the whole parking lot looked like people had been spilling beer and, you know, taking a leak. It, it, like, it was just, it was crazy. But, uh, yeah, and... and what a hockey team that was. Trottier, Bossy, and Potvin, oh man. Like that was it was a, that that was a great hockey team. It's it's all come full circle for me, Rick. I was a 13-year-old boy, probably didn't go to school the next day, and here I am 40 years later talking to you about the gig that you played the day after. It's all come first cir full circle. But Rick, this has been a great we could go on all day. Um, the book is awesome. So where can we find all out about Rick Emmett and the book and, and everywhere about your information? Where we where, where can we find out about it? Well, the book was published by ECW Press. So, you know, they got a website and they got things. But, of course, you can just go to Amazon and find the book, you know. Um, and uh, I do like, and the, the, the publishers like me to say this when I do this pitch, you know. Everybody, there's independent booksellers that are in and around your neighborhoods. And those, you know, those mom and pop places, they, they, they require people to be uh, community spirited in, if they're going to survive. So, you know, it doesn't hurt to go down to your local bookstore. And if they don't have the book, say, wait, will you order me in a copy? And I'd like to get one for my uncle. Oh, and my cousin, Jimmy. And, you know, like, you know, uh, that would that would be a good thing because I I think the the whole idea of uh, the writing of books and the reading of books uh, in, in in spite of the fact that we're in a digital age I, I I think it's still important to our humanity. Well, Rick, this has been a great conversation, and uh, we hope to speak to you again down the line, or maybe see you down in New York City or Rochester at some point if you ever get the guitar out and get up to the Iridium and play or somewhere like that. All right, guys. Yeah, don't hold your breath, but yeah, okay. <laughs> But when my jazz guitar record comes out, get all the metalheads to buy it. Sounds great. We'll look for it. All right. Thank you. Have a good one. Bye-bye.
Metal for life. Thank you for listening to Metal Mayhem ROC. Check out our website at MetalMayhemROC.com for information on podcasts, archives, links to all our live radio shows, and all sorts of info. Please like, follow, and share with everyone, even your non-metal friends. And always remember to keep it heavy. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.